Thank you for being here with us today. Please open up to Exodus chapter 20. It's good to be in the house of the Lord and to worship God through His Son. Amen? We go through passage by passage through the Bible. To uh, You've found us in the middle of our series going through Exodus. And we've found ourselves in this, in this uh, 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 10-week series where we study the Ten Commandments of God that He spoke out of Mount Sinai by His own voice. Many of the other laws, He spoke only to Moses, who then repeated it to the rest of the nation. Moses wrote it down on parchment, scrolls, paper, whatever it is that they had. And, but it is the Ten Commandments that God spoke to the whole assembly with His own voice. He then wrote it on stone, not on paper. He wrote it with his own finger on those tablets of stone. He didn't delegate that to Moses. These Ten Commandments that we study continue to be over all people for all time, the standard by which God will judge us on Judgment Day. It's a good, a good exercise for us, especially if, if you don't know where you are with Jesus Christ. If you don't know that he has taken your account and gone before God and argued it on the case of his own blood. If you don't know for sure that God has saved you through Jesus, then it is a good exercise, as well for everybody else, to go to the Ten Commandments of God and read it so that it can awaken in us an awareness of how fallen and sinful we are. This is how God will judge you on Judgment Day. This is one of the purposes of the law, that it then encourages us, demands that we flee to Jesus Christ and there find salvation, which we can never have by trying to obey the law. But it also goes on to be a perfect rule of life for all Christians. Everybody who has placed their faith in Jesus and are saved from the condemnation of breaking the law, now are turned back to the law in order to be sanctified, in order to know how to live in God's word, world according to his ways, we look to his law. And it is a perfect law. We're going to read again from chapter 20 verse 1 all the way down through to verse 12, which will be the fifth commandment and our topic today. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for, the, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your sojourner, or, sorry, or your daughter or the male servant or female servant, livestock or sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the lands that the Lord your God is giving to you. May God bless the reading of his own powerful, inerrant, authoritative law in our midst this morning. 
There are things that we have been asking ourselves every time we come to one of these commandments. Those questions have been, since the law reveals God, since the law is the, the, the authority, authoritative commandment on all of us, and since the law can't save us, we ask these three questions. Where's God in this law? Well, what does this tell us about God? Then we ask, where's the commandment in this law? How does this instruct us authoritatively? And then thirdly, we ask, how are we saved from this law? How does this law remind us or point us to Jesus Christ? And that is our task this morning, those questions. First of all, as we ask the question, what does this commandment reveal about the God who gave it? It tells us that God is a father. God is the archetypal father, just nerd language for meaning, the original design and origin of the essence of fatherhood. God doesn't reveal himself as father in scripture because human beings had fathers and he thought that might be a helpful analogy, not what happens. God was first eternally father in his very essence and therefore created a world and reflected his own being into that creation so that all of us are born having fathers so that we understand God. God is the archetypal, the origin, the, the original design of all that is meant in, 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 in being father. He's a personal God to his essential being. Do, do, you, do you hear sometimes people say, that the reason God made you is because he wanted somebody to have a relationship with? Ba-bow. Not at all the case. God created us. He desires and commands and, and initiates relationship with us, of course. But don't so, 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 so insult blasphemously the second and the third persons of the Trinity by saying that God the Father had no company he, he cared to share much of his time with, so made us, and aren't we just great company? No, no, the, God has always, in his Trinitarian being, in his very essential nature, he is, he is one being, and yet subsisting, or existing within that one nature, in three persons that each share the fullness and entire breadth of what it means to be God. So that we have Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, meaning... That is why John can say that our God is love. He didn't start loving when he created something to love. He has been loving in a social community for all of eternity. That is his essential being. God is three in one, and so his intra-Trinitarian relationships have been continual since forever, but he has also revealed that they have always known one another in a relationship named Father, Son, and Spirit. That this is an eternal relationship they have to one another. Though, though they take on certain roles and they submit in certain ways in history for our salvation, yet there has always been a fa the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their, in their intra-Trinitarian relationship. So when we speak of fatherhood and parenting more generally, we are getting to one of the most, most basic, fundamental, eternal principles that has ever existed. Also, God in his salvation has eternally planned to save people into relationship with him in a father-son relationship. So, so our God is father in his essential being, in his creation, he calls Adam his son, and then we see that in his salvation, 
Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. God could have said anything. God could have thought or formulated, we might think, salvation to be any kind of picture. He predestined us to be, to be rescued as, 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 as sub, sub, subjugated uh, c- civilians. He, he, he predestined to, uh, uh, to, to ransom us as those who were in debt. That's not the essential, the most core way that God views it, is that he is bringing us into his divine family. Salvation is adoption into God's family. Jesus taught us in his earthly life to address God as our father. By his own example, we also call God my father, my personal father, our father, our communal father. Before we learn how how this command, uh, uh, the fifth commandment, applies to our earthly parents, we must first humble ourselves before God, the father, who is in heaven. He commands us to honor fathers because by, and, and mothers because by honoring our earthly authority, we are ultimately honoring him. And even more so, he commands us to honor parents because he first honors parents in his design of everything that the family is. Good or bad parents have all been given, by the very nature of being parents, a heavy but glorious badge of honor given by God himself. He says, you get to be father and with him mother. You get to reflect my fatherly love and personhood and nature. That is a heavy, glorious badge to bear so that when they are bad parents, there is heavy consequences and punishments by God. But when it is done well, in our honoring of parents then, we are honoring God through them. It's not just, God is not just an impersonal being, a a distant creator, a far-off deity. He is more than just a divine force. He is a person. We, we forget, we miss out on, and we neglect much importance in our relationship with God as Christians if we forget this idea and this notion that he is first and foremost our father. So firstly, in this commandment, we see that God is Father, but we also see that God, the Heavenly Father, honors the earthly family. You will not find a book in history or on earth that honors the unit called family higher and deeper and wider than the Bible. God is a family-oriented God. God calls us to honor the parents and family because he has first designed family in this amazingly central, essential, honorable position. God's design for family is immense and it is often overlooked, especially in Western and modern Christianity. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll speak to people who are newly engaged and we start talking about marriage down the, obviously shortly down the track and then into the future and I'll talk to them about an, a, a family. And what about family? What about starting a, a family together and children? And, and they might say to me sometimes, huh, I guess we haven't thought about that. But this is very common and, and it's their parents' fault. Who didn't teach them that marriage equals family? How can, you, how can you jump in a car and not think about driving? It's about more than the comfy seats. Marriage is more than, than the two of you. It's about family. Or, or often I'll, I'll speak to, to young guys. Go, What's your five-year plan? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? What about family? What? 
why would I think about family? I'm 19. Like, I'm thinking 5, 10 years, not 40 years. Like, guys just don't know when fatherhood happens or how it happens often. They just think it's this far-off imaginary landscape that they might visit, probably not. Or, or, or as a man might come to me and have all of these, these spiritual ailments and sins and ways that people are against him. Or, or he's very impressed with himself and wants me to see that. And I'll ask the question, how's family life? How do your children speak to you? How do you speak to your wife? How often do you read the Bible together? The look I often get back is, how is my family at all relevant to my spirituality? Often. We just forget how central it is to us. We see this in in especially Old Testament and and bleeding over into New Testament. But in the Israelite mindset of things, you, you are defined by who you are the son of. I am Joshua, son of Nun, the great man of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean he didn't have a dad. His dad's name was Nun. All right? I don't know why I picked that example. That was probably the worst example. All right. <laughs> the name that you carry is, and we see this even in, uh, in our day. We might see a, 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 a McDonald, meaning literally son of Donald. Uh, an O'Shea, meaning grandson of Shea. We, we, we see this, uh, Donaldson, maybe the English version. The, you're a son of Donald. Uh, we put these things together and we, we see that names carry Meaning, because they connect us to our family, which is an element of our identity. It was not a conservative author. It was not a church council. It was not a theologian in the medieval ages. It was not Augustine who designed or told us all that family is important and that nuclear family is essential and vital to God's plan. It was God who designed this. God designed marriage to create families which create communities which build culture and strong nations. The family is the most basic building block of society. It, is, it has, in marriage and in raising family, or to parents especially, married people who are looking to become parents, God gives to them, the reason he tells us to honor them, is because he has honored them with a value and power of one of the most important roles in the world, an immeasurably valuable job, which is to create, which is fun, foster and raise human beings, immortal souls. That is an immense task, responsibility and glory. C.S. Lewis used to say that you have never interacted with a mere mortal. Every person you've sat next to on the bus, bumped into at the train station, served at work, seen passing on the road, every single one of them will exist forever somewhere. And if you were to, C.S. Lewis says, if, if you were to see now what they will be, either in glory or in condemnation, They would appear to you with such immensity that you would be tempted to bow down and worship them. The glorified saints in heaven, the the de-glorified sinners in hell, will have such such an immortal nature to them that they will never perish either in God's presence or under God's judgment. Every person we've ever interacted with is an immortal soul. And parents are entrusted in marriage by covenant to create these things. to to raise these things, to shape these things called human beings that each one of us are. It's an immensely honorable thing. In God's design, J.I. Packer says this, 
that family is the most basic social unit. No community is strong where families are weak. You can't have a strong house if the bricks are all, are all crumbly. Putting a whole bunch of broken things together doesn't make it whole. Families, he says, is a basic, uh, sorry, are the most basic spiritual unit. There is no such thing as a church that is strong where the families are weak. This is true. God has to invest so much priority in the family. It's, it's, it's where you first learn, for example, how to be a good neighbor. It's where you first learn how to submit to authority, how to do work. It's where you first learn how to receive just punishments and deal with it when you receive unjust punishments. The family is where you learn the truths of God. And so the, the Puritans used to call the family unit a little school, a little church, a little, uh, a little workforce, God is a family-oriented God. He calls himself Father. He commands us to honor earthly fathers and mothers. He does some of his most important and foundational basic work in forging each of us psychologically, spiritually, physically, mentally. He does that work in the womb of the home. I think we take it one step back and this would all make a lot of sense to us. We, we understand that in pregnancy, before they're born and in the family home, they're first in the mother. And we understand that there, there are all the, the most foundation, they can't survive out of there. You take a child out of the womb and, and they perish. There is a, a necessary reliance on the mother. So it is with children. Children struck, uh, stripped from the home and, and, and either orphaned or, or taken away and raised by, uh, 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 by, by the government in some kind of statist or totalitarian times of history, it's destructive to the person. Also, we know that if something goes wrong in pregnancy, a, a, single, a single vein grows wrong, a, a single microscopic chromosome is placed wrongly or slightly copied incorrectly, and things can, or, or a single injury to the mother, one thing can happen to that baby then that affects them the rest of their life because that was foundational and formational. It's the same in the home. The way that parents treat siblings are, are, are related to, the way that children grow up in the home affects them forever. It's not to make excuses for adults who cast their blame to their parents. It is to remind the parents and remind the children God has put a lot resting on family. Your parents have a lot of weight riding on their shoulders. God is a family oriented God. That's why verse 12 says, look at verse 12, the, the second half after the commandment comes the promise. Verse 12, he says, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's why God gives such a blessing, such a promise addended to the command, honor them, because God honors it. God, God's got this, this bank of, of blessings that are just piled up. And if you'll just come and, 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 and honor the family, honor your mother and father, there's all these blessings that are going to flow out to you through that one little door. God has said, it, your life will go long with you. Now, this is repeated in Deuteronomy. Jesus repeats it. 
And it's repeated in Ephesians chapter 6 as well. Now, Paul slightly tweaks it so that it's not so much focused on the Israelites' promise of being in the land, but rather just every Christian's life and, in fact, everybody, even non-Christians, those who honor mother and father, what we see is not a mathematical equation here. It's not as if for every act of obedience, you sort of get an extra year or month of life. And every act of yes, mum, yes, dad, you sort of get an extra month free of, of, of a bill of clean health, as if, as if it's sort of a, a withdrawal system like that. How many of us, maybe through our teenage years, our, our life expectancy was probably pretty low at that point. Some of us got down to maybe a day left at that point, if that's how it worked. Not how it works. Rather, we see the general promise of which exceptions are exceptions. God isn't promising mathematical life length based on obedience. He's saying, the way I've designed the world, the way that the world works, the way that my blessings are running down this grain, don't go across the grain. Don't drive the wrong way on the road. Don't go round the roundabout the wrong way. Don't walk on your hands. This is how the world works, and therefore God's blessings will meet you and gather up with you and take you into a long, blessed, abundant life. <clears throat> therefore, we see God is a father, and he honors the family. He's a, he's a family-oriented God. Then we move to the question of, okay, where's the commandment? Where's the law? How do we obey this? What is it commanding? And and I'm first going to remind us that a, a couple of weeks before we started the Ten Commandments, we studied the very nature and dynamics of divine law. And theologians have this category called, uh, uh, sorry, this, this, this idea called the, the categorical nature of God's law. Basically, it means no loopholes. We know this with, uh, with do not commit murder or uh, uh, do not steal Underneath those categorical titles, there's a whole, whole slew of other sins that it is forbidden. So you can't say, well, I didn't kill him. I was just, I just put my bear trap down. I, I thought he wanted it as a present set on his front porch. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't kill him. I just put that there and he happened to come out when I rung his doorbell. What, like that. So, so, so what, the, what the commandment says is don't murder, but also don't do any of the things that might lead to that. Don't tolerate it in your heart. There's all sorts of sins under the broader category. And it's true of honor mother and father. It doesn't just mean your biological mother and father. The, the Puritans would go and, and expand on this and, and describe all the ways that the, the Old Testament and, and Jesus' teaching and the writings of the apostles are sort of, are sort of leveraged on or, or springboarded off of this essential commandment. So we see that in the category of honor your mother and father is also to honor every type of mother and father. If we were to summarize this commandment and maybe rephrase it, it could be, be subject and give honor to all legitimate authority. That could be how we might... Now, I'm not going to reword God's word. Bad idea. But I'm saying this is the, this is the summary or essential sort of teaching. So that the, the Puritans pointed out that we also have the magistrate. Right? The, 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 the prime ministers and state ministers and state representatives and the governors and the kings. They are our political fathers, and we might really dislike that language because <clears throat> we call them other things, <laughs> not dad. 
I remember when Perth published something, a mid-COVID uh, a craze, craziness, and, and they put out something, thank you, daddy, whatever their, their minister's name is, and that was gut-wrenching to me, disgusting, but also deeply problematic. Kevin DeYoung, in his book on the Ten Commandments, points out every time in history that totalitarian governments want to enact all of their agendas, they first have to weaken the most basic block of protection and and wisdom, which is the family. What did Marx do? What did Stalin come and do? What did Hitler do? What what what, What does Mao do? Everybody who knows how to take control of a mass of people need them all defined as individual little blocks in society. As soon as they gather together in families and see themselves as that with an identity beyond the state, bad news for a totalitarian authoritarian. As soon as they start gathering themselves together in churches with an authority and an identity above the state and beyond the nation, bad news for a totalitarian. Tyrants hate the family. Can't remember how I got there. Ah, yes. But it is yet biblical. Isaiah 49 does speak of kings being, in a sense, a national father. Isaiah 49 verse 23 says, Kings shall be your nursing fathers. So I don't recommend using this. Father Charles over in, over in England. Now, I don't recommend the use of it, but it is at least a, a, a biblical concept to, to understand. Secondly, we have fathers and mothers among us who are so by their age. I'm not going to start pointing you out. But there are those among us who are by their age and maturity, especially their their advancement in holiness, who as a church, we are right to consider them in a sense as spiritual mothers and fathers. Proverbs 16 says, amen some of you for this, that grey hair is a crown of glory. I don't know what that says about no hair, just grace upon grace, okay, glory upon shiny glory. But there are those among us, so don't make hair jokes, for example, about the elderly. That would be a breaking of the fifth commandment. Uh, so, <laughs> whoops. Uh, so what we should do is we should honor those among us who are respectable, aged, those who have gone beyond us. Thomas Watson says, especially among those in whom holiness is flourishing, though the body is decaying. Age doesn't mean wisdom. Old doesn't mean holy. There's a lot of old fools. Some of the worst marriage advice I ever got was from an older guy who took me aside and made sure that I tried before I bought my wife. Who who made sure that we would be living together before we marry each other. This is all very serious, young Tom. Age doesn't mean wisdom. However, in the church, we expect that. We, we, we give, a, we give a, 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 a tendency towards that assumption and that respect towards the aged. Thirdly, we have our historical fathers and mothers. That is, those who are no longer living, but those who have gone before us. Those who have handed down the Bible in our language, which they were able to do by their blood and martyrdom. Those who have gone before us and fought and died and bled on foreign soil or our soil in wars to, to secure our freedom. It is a breaking of the fifth commandment to speak, to speak degradingly and dishonorably of our veterans, of, 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 the, of the Anzacs, of, of those in our spiritual lineage, of the Reformation and the martyrs and the, of the early church and so it might go on. They have given to us something that we have not earned but have received from our historical fathers and mothers 
We ought to be thankful and not extremely critical like so many are in our day and age. This historic revisionism and Marxist hatred of everybody before us who were bigots and who were idiots and who were unrighteous and who were evil. You know, atheistic secularism has really perfected us now. People in two, five, twelve hundred years, they'll look back on us. We're angels to them. We judge people from history. It's a way of breaking the fifth commandment. Being unthankful for gifts that they have handed down to us, the bills of rights and constitutions, breaking the fifth commandment. We also have spiritual fathers. Those are the ministers, elders, and pastors in the church who have a genuine authority and a very deep love in and for the church. The New Testament speaks of giving double honor, obedience, submission to them who rule the church and speak God's word. We also have, ultimately, our heavenly father, who we spoke of earlier, God, the archetypal, original God, who we honor obey and serve, and more so, we worship as Father. And more specifically, or what is probably most on the face of this commandment, we have our biological father and mother, who your father who begot you, your mother who bore you, or if not your biological, then at least the parents that raised you. And this is foundational to every other one. You can't learn to honor God if you don't know how to honor your earthly father. You don't know, and you're not going to be good at moving out of the home and submitting to your civil authorities and the police if you weren't ever able to say, yes, sir, thank you, dad. Yes, mom, absolutely, mom. We learn how to relate to our church authority, uh, civil authorities, historical fathers, all those things through the relationship that we have with our parents. And that is why some theologians of the past have said, that the two tables of God's law are five commandments and five commandments. Theologians say there's the two tables of God's law. The first one directs towards God. The second one directs towards our neighbors. You can summarize it. Love God, love neighbor. Well, how do you divide it up then? And theologians have often said, well, the first four are very clearly about God and the last six are very clearly about neighbors. Some theologians say, no, this honor father and mother is so foundational to worship of God. It is so essential to understanding God. Let's lump it up with being a Godward act of obedience and worship. I don't think it really matters how we divide it up, but it is essential to everything else, which is why in Deuteronomy 21, Exodus 21, Leviticus 20, and others, the death penalty is given to the children uh, who are of age and knowledgeable and should be able to know better, who are dishonoring, disobedient, and shameful towards their, and violent towards their parents. They are to be killed by stoning. They'll be tied up to a, to a post at the gate of town and thrown rocks at till they're dead. Now, that to me sounds like the same punishment for blasphemy and idolatry. Why does God elevate this, this sin so highly, this command so highly? Because it is foundational to so much of our knowledge and worship of God. For Christians, the law for us is that we must honor every legitimate authority that God puts over us, our king, our prime minister, the police officers, our boss, the aged, our landlords, our parents, our bosses, and of course, God himself. We must be marked as people who honor authority. We're not revolutionaries. We're not rioters. We're Protestants. We're, we're, we stand firm on principles. 
We say respectfully no when we need to, but we are honorable people who delight in honoring God's authority that he gives to us. So now let's, let's ask the question, what about the, the family unit? I can just hear the kids screaming, tell us deeply, how do we honor my parents? We're, we're, gonna, we're there now. It's okay. We've got there. We've got there. How to obey and honor your parents or parent <clears throat> if you don't know one of them. John Calvin said this can come down to three things. Honor means reverence, obedience, and gratitude. First of all, reverence. That's probably not a word that our kids are getting taught at school to go home and give to reverence or even, right? Fear. I don't know. Reverence, though, is, is fitting. Reverence, I think, especially comes down to attitude and speech. When we speak to our parents, is it one of respect? One, of, one that recognizes that there is authority here, this authority is given by God, and you're not just some tyrant trying to swing me around. I, I respect you. Is there something that says to the, to the parent, kids, to your parent, teenagers, to your parents, that speaks to them in a way that shows respect, due, due diligence, and, 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 and solemnity about the office that they hold from God? As we remember, they have a badge on their heart that is given by God, and they'll be held accountable for it. Maybe sometimes they're heavy-handed with rules. Maybe sometimes they're snappy. Maybe sometimes they take longer to make a decision about something that you want to do. Give them grace. They have an important task given to them, and they will be asked about every decision by the Lord Jesus Christ. We respect them in speaking to them, and we show honor in speaking about them. Sometimes we have lip service to mum and dad to avoid the spanking or the discipline or so that we keep the, the iPad, the PlayStation, the Nintendo 64, the rock and strings, whatever generation you belong to, there might be respect to parents in speech, dishonor behind their backs, the way we speak to the schoolmates, speak to our siblings behind the parents' back, and, and we might degrade them. We might complain about them. That is dishonoring our parents by not having a due reverence for them. This means even as, as adults that we, we ought not have a, a kind of culture among the family where mum and dad are the aged idiots, the butt of every joke. They're, they're every failure hung out on the lawn, on the, on, the, on the clothesline for all to see and know about, but we speak well of our fathers and our mothers. We honor them as we hope our children do to us. That means obedience, so reverence towards them in speech, obedience in what they say. Now, if you say, yes, explain what obedience means, you don't need that. You don't need me to hyper-theologize what obedience means. It just means do it. A very prompt, sincere, yes, dad, yes, mum. And you know what? Every now and then, yes, sir, goes a long way. Goes a long way. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yes, dad. Yes, mom. Here I am. Ask questions if you need to understand more, but prompt obedience and not delayed or slimy sort of slipping out of technically what they're saying. Don't touch doesn't mean hover the finger just over until your brother bumps you and then he, he mom, mom, how could I have? Obedience means obedience from the heart and let it be prompt. And also it means gratitude. Thank you, mom. Thank you. That that goes so far. In an age of, I don't think it is the age of entitlement. The human nature is entitlement, and we see it every generation. I read something from Socrates this week, who was complaining about the youth being unthankful, entitled, 
rude and silly in the streets. Surely, he says, we're at the end of the world. <laughs> sure. We, we, we tend to think just the young people these days are like, this is, our, this is human nature. Humans hate authority. People despise parents naturally and need to be taught otherwise. Wickedness is bound up in the heart of our child and discipline and correct punishments and teaching drive that out of them. But children, thank you, mum. Thank you, Dad, should be frequently on. They make sacrifices for you that I hope they don't plaster all over the walls and look how much I suffer for you and I gave up this for you. No, it's a joyful sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice that does deserve gratitude. When's the last, even adults, when's the last time you called up, visited, said to your parents, thank you for what you did for me? Every single mealtime, we say in the Ford household, we praise God for the food and we say thank you to mum for the meal. When I cook, we say thank you to God for the original ingredients. But that's a, a dynamic we try and foster. Mum, before anybody eats, mum gets thanked. Wow, mum, this looks amazing. This tastes great. And it does. So gratitude, obedience, and reverence. Because parents deserve this, not only because of who they are, but also because of, but more foundationally, because of how God, the honor that God gave to them. This means that parents, if that's God's commandment to your children, who does God command to, in, to, 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 to enforce that commandment to your children? It's, it's you. And wherever God commands something to children, then parents need to take that up and require it. Require obedience promptly. Father, back your wife up. Mum said this, now you do it. That's not how you speak to mum. That's not how you address your father in this house. Back each other up, require it of them, require a due and familial and loving, affectionate reverence, and require gratitude of them as your discipleship to them. Now, maybe that's like age 1 to 18, maybe let's think about those of us who are 18 up to middle age, and I'm not going to define middle age, you self-identify in whatever age you think you are, but young adult up to middle age, it, it becomes different because we often move out and we get busy, we have our studies, we have our work, we often have our own relationships and romances, our own children, uh, 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 churches, ministries, ways of serving Jesus, then marriage and family and children and household and mortgage and rent and all of those things. If I can say one thing here, 18 to middle age, honor your parents with time, with time, a visit, uh, a phone, let them see the grandchildren, let them, let them talk on the phone if at distance or at least in some regular, do what you can to honor those people who I assure you, I've been assured by my parents and grandparents, do actually miss you. And celebrate in your leaving the house how many mothers will, will tearfully weep over the loss of their children into the, the absolute death of moving two minutes down the road. <laughs> I miss you. Honor them with your time. And maybe from middle age into old age, what becomes very important, what, one area of application here is to care for your parents. Life is a cycle as it goes like this. And as we age... So also our parents' age and our honor towards them needs to include a care for them, a, a way of showing back or paying back what was given in their years of care, sacrifice, provision, working, 
the financial costs they bore for you. They get to rely back on you for it. The the man who, who crafts a walking stick has a right to lean on his staff. So also parents who, 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 who raise children have a right in their old age to lean on their own children. Are you available towards your elderly parents to be lent on? This may be financial help, maybe managing their affairs, or even daily cares in their sickness. This was, this was a, a, a raised by Jesus. This direct application of the fifth commandment was raised by Jesus. This is what he says in Mark chapter 7. He's talking to the people who are making up human traditions to avoid honoring God's laws, right? They're doing a Ten Commandment teaching series, and every application is, well, it doesn't technically mean that. You can probably just be fine. That's how they're preaching, right? They were progressives. They were, they, were, they were avoiding God's law by their own traditions. And Jesus said this, Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he said, Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Moses spoke God's law. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, which means given to God, then you no longer permit him to give anything to his father or mother. Here's what the system was in Jesus' day. The Pharisees had set up sort of a, a social security system for the priests And for the Levites and the teachers and the Pharisees and the theologians, basically it went like this. God's law commands you to use what you have inherited from parents and what you have raised up in terms of wealth and provision in life. Your parents are allowed, you owe it to your parents that they can lean on you for needs in their old age. The Pharisees said this, what you can't do is steal from God's temple and try and feed your elderly parents. Now technically... If you devote everything you have to God, but you look after it because we can't store it all at the temple, then you get to say it all belongs to God and your parents don't get a lick of it. That would be blasphemous. And that's how the system works. They called it korban. So basically they, they go down and they sit and have a coffee with their aging parents who need to move to a smaller home and they say, look, I, I wanted to, to help the Lord just put on my heart to devote everything to him. I'm going to look after it for him. Good luck. That's how it worked. Now, this is Jesus' direct application of the fifth commandment, is look after your elderly parents in their need. This means that we cannot follow the trend of our culture to quickly and conveniently, even against their will, boot them to an institution, make them a patient of somebody else's care, and get them out of the responsibility and the care and the love of the family. This doesn't mean that every single person has the resources and the requirement to to build another wing of the house, to to put in medical ICU. Some people need hospital and care that is above our, our competency. But the question becomes, have you genuinely sat down, talked to parents, talked to yourself, looked at your budget, prayed to God, asked for advice from other godly people who've done it better than you and said, how can we make room in our life in that room, with a granny flat, in order to to care for our elderly parents. I was talking to one guy one time, and his his parents did not want to go to a nursing home, and he was booting them there. I said to him, have have you not thought about how you and your wife might look after them? He goes, oh, we can't fit them in our house. I go, yeah, okay. 
Do you think your parents bought a five-bedroom house when they first got married? Or that maybe they lived in a two-bedder and then expanded as children were given to them as responsibility and blessing by God? We need to think the same way about parents. Yeah, will it be an inconvenience? I'm sure. Will it be a change of lifestyle for a time? I'm sure. Is it our responsibility to take it before them, take it before God and ask, how might I look after my elderly aging parents that literally gave me life and sustenance? Yes, it is Jesus' application of the fifth commandment. Now, we could ask, what about those who have bad parents? And that's not some kind of 2% hypothetical. There are people even here who have had abusive, genuinely neglectful, horrible, tyrannical, religiously tyrannical, when you can breathe, eat, sleep, shower until you're 30 years old, under my authority, given by God. The kind of dads never take you to church, but they'll control what you wear. He's the highest authority in the home, or, or the mother is, 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 is cultishly authoritative in spiritual things as if they're, they're going to keep the whole brood together till their death. Yes, there are genuinely bad parents because sinners are sinners of every age. What the commandment of honor, your, and this is of course their favorite commandment, fifth commandment of honoring mother and father means, what it does not mean is tolerate abuse, genuinely defined, genuine abuse. Children do not need to, wives do not need to, family, uh, teenagers, children of any age do not need to continue to subject themselves to abuse, either verbal, spiritual, sexual, mental, simply because of the command to honor. It is right and good to involve other, other family authorities, the elders, the police when there's danger. That is how you honor your parents in their God-given role. You doing that will help them have a better judgment day where they give an account for the honor of being a parent than if you remain under it and, and say nothing. It is your right in order to seek help. And for those of us who have parents who are not outright abusive but did not seem to try, first of all, we give them tremendous grace. Maybe when you have kids leaving home, then we can start writing down all their failures. We have to give them grace. You will be more like them than you, than you like to hope that you are. So giving them grace is giving yourself a bit of grace. We are patient with them. We're gracious towards them. We pray for them. But for those who genuinely are bad parents, unchristianly parents, ungodly parents, whatever honor we give to them is honor for the sake of the office, maybe not for the sake of the person may mean you don't see each other and they don't come visit at Christmas and they don't have a, a, a say in the life of your children and they don't see them. There's abuse, there's, 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 there's mistreatment. Uh, maybe it's down the spectrum a little bit and they're not great to be around. Okay, there's limitations. You see my kids and you come visit the family on my terms. It's not open door policy for the overly attached and, and uh, disrespectful mother-in-law. So, so there's all sorts of uh, ways that we might honor this commandment that is that has a million applications, but this is the heart of God's people, that we would honor and submit to our authorities given to us by God for his sake. That's the law. That's the law of God, and it's a good law that will be to us a blessing of life, even though it is difficult. We see that in Jesus' life. As we consider now, there's the commandment to the God who is Father, who gives us his law, and here are all of us, just like the Israelites, standing there at the bottom of the mountain. And if we've listened, 
if we know ourselves, our conclusion is, if God judges me by that one alone, I'm done. I've not done that perfectly in mind, speech, behavior. I've not. To that, we then look to Jesus who came many years later to us, many years in the past, and we look at his example. We see that he was perfectly submissive to his earthly father and mother. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, Jesus uh, uh, is going back with his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, going back from a great celebration of worship at the temple. And it says that he went with them. He went down with them and all came to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Parents treasure up when the children are submissive. If ever you're tempted to think, I'm more holy, I know more, I'm more godly than my parents, that doesn't undo the fifth commandment. Guess who was more godly than his parents at every day of his life? Teenage, teenage Jesus was more godly than his parents. That's never happened before. That happened with Jesus and still perfectly submissive, perfectly honoring, delighting to do as his parents represented God's authority. He understood, as we have been driven to understand today, that, that every rebellion against family authority is ultimately a rebellion against God's authority. That every disdaining of the family structure is a disdaining for God's design. That every breaking of family authority is really a breaking of God's law. Jesus knew that. Not only did he obey it perfectly to his earthly father, where we all failed, he was also perfectly submissive to his heavenly father. This is what he said in John chapter 6. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see that submission in Jesus? I'm obeying my father here. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of the Father to the Son as a command. Go into the world, do a very hard thing, live perfectly, fight Satan, resist temptation, and then die a death you don't deserve. Die under my wrath. I will inflict you with punishment and penalty and suffering and death so that you might win back the lost ones, so that you might bring into the family the lost children of God. In the Bible, especially the Old Testament, there's this, this, this uh, uh, idea of the kinsman redeemer. If you fall into debt or slavery or captivity in war, God says that it is the responsibility of the nearest male relative who is able to take up his arms, take up his gold, take up his horses, go and rescue you, pay your debt, fight for you, whatever must be done. In human ways, there was all sorts of kinsmen redeemers available. In spiritual terms, there was no sibling, cousin, uncle, great-grandfather that any of us had that could have done anything to redeem us as a faithful family member and kinsman redeemer from our lostness, our debt, and our death into sin. 
That captivity was terminal. No one could save us. No human could do it. And so God, in sending his son, was giving to us a new relative, a new older brother who was like us human, yet more than us. He alone was able to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us, and to pay for our debts. That's what Jesus was sent to do. That was the will of the Father, and he succeeded. He did it perfectly in obedience, and so God, like a good father, honored his son. And when God had finished punishing Jesus in death, he then rose him up on the Sunday into glory. And this is the promise that Jesus spoke of, that anybody who knows themselves to be a sinner, to be guilty, to be imperfect, to be not a a perfect honoring of all authority, especially of God. If you know you're a sinner, then you look to Jesus, God's resurrected, glorified son, and if you look to him and rest on him, trust in him, put the arms of your soul out and say, rescue me, Jesus, if you do that, then the father of us all will look on you as if you were in his own son. He will forgive you. In Jesus' words, let's read it again. This is the will of my Father, that everybody, any sinner, everybody who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the call of Jesus. Believe in me. That is the command of the Father. Believe in my Son and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, you are just that. You are our Father. You are our dear, holy Father, who is related to us through your Son in mercy and grace. You had related to us through your law in justice and judgment and righteous condemnation. We are thankful that we can be the assembly of the redeemed this morning. We can come to you and not tremble for the punishment and the wrath that is awaiting us, but rather we can rejoice and be thankful that in your son you have given a replacement, a representative who took our sin, who paid for our debt, who redeemed us from all of our sins against the fifth commandment and every other commandment. We thank you, Lord God, that you graciously gave him We thank you that you now use him as an example for us that we might look to and follow. We thank you that you've given us one of the inheritances or the chief inheritance to all of your children. You have laid up the Holy Spirit for us. And we have him now able to understand the word in our minds. He makes us able to love the word in our hearts. He makes us able to love the other saints in the family of God. He makes us able to walk like Jesus and walk in power against sin. And we thank you for him. Father God, we praise you as a generous, loving, redeeming God who did not leave us in our sin but sent your own son. We pray that there would be Faith and salvation, that people today who are still in their sins and going to hell would look to Jesus and believe in him and would be given eternal life. We pray that we would go out from here honoring your law, speaking well of authority and respecting our parents. Lord God, we pray all of this in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.